Good morning, everyone. Well, you know, summer is almost over. Those of us who have kids in the Encinitas School District, especially elementary school age, tomorrow morning we regain our freedom. Isn't that great? Our, you know, we're paying our taxes so that we get this babysitting. So we're looking forward to uh, tomorrow morning having the kids back at school. And uh, and then the next week we can have the rest of them off to school. So that is uh, it's fun for me. This summer I took a trip with uh, I have three boys. And so I'm a big Boston Red Sox fan. And so I told them, hey, let's go to Fenway Park in Boston and watch a baseball game because that's something I wanted to do with them for a long time. So we did. And so this year I bought a small used RV. We got in the car and we drove to Boston and watched a baseball game and then came home. And um, and we did a lot of things along the way. And my wife, in her great wisdom, said, sounds like a fantastic boys trip. Uh, you guys have a good drive. And uh, she flew and met us in Boston, spent about five days. And then when we turned the car westward, she said, all right, see you later, and got on the plane and met us back at home. So um, she is the smart one. But we had a great time kind of traveling across the country. We went to 30 states and a bunch of baseball games and different stadiums. But one of the places we went to was, was St. Louis. And I went to uh, part of my high school years in St. Louis. So I brought my kids to, uh, did someone just give me a little whoop over there? Seriously, for St. Louis? All right, yeah. So, um that's good. That has not happened to me now. I'm totally flustered. Okay, so I'm the only one from St. Louis. So we, we went to the, I showed them my old house and we went to uh, my school and kind of showed them where I went to school and, and then went down to this river that was near my house, the Merrimack River, and, and where we used to go on hot summer days and, and go on this rope swing into the water and just kind of cool off and spend our summers there, just me and my friend Huckleberry Finn. And we... we you know, kind of just enjoyed that time and brought them down there and we swam in the river, which I learned that now they call it the Redneck Riviera. So I was there and with the cast of Duck Dynasty, you know, just enjoying the day. But so I was down there with them. But I was thinking if I could go back to talk to me when I was that kid in St. Louis, what would I want to tell me knowing what I know? And a question for us this morning I'd ask you is, if you could go back to talk to you at some point during your life, maybe before a big situation or I don't know, what would you, what point would you want to go back and tell yourself? And it can't be like, hey, tonight's winning lotto numbers are this. I mean, not that. But if there's something that came up in your life that you wish you would have known if you had had the, the hindsight to look back and say, hey, just know this, what would it be? You know, this summer we've been going through this series called Everybody Hurts. We started our summer with that series and kind of exploring the purpose of pain. And then the second half, we've been studying different characters in the Bible who experienced pain and hurt and how God met them in that pain. And this morning we get to look at this guy named Joseph from the Bible in the book of Genesis. And Joseph is one of those characters that I think that if anyone in the Bible could have benefited from going back and talking to themselves a lot earlier to tell them, hey, this is how it ends. I think Joseph is that guy. And so this morning we're going to kind of look at his life and ask ourselves a question. What can we learn from that? What do we learn about God from Joseph's life? This morning I called it, how do we find God in the pits of life? 
And we'll look at that in a minute. But pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your graciousness to us and your goodness. And uh, thank you for your love. And I thank you that even in times in life when we find ourselves maybe in the pits of life, that's hard to find where you're at or what you're doing, that somehow you're at work. And so this morning I pray you'd open our eyes to your presence and you'd meet us here where we're at. God, we, we worship you and want you to be the center of who we are here as a church and as individuals. And so I pray that you'd speak to us now. In your name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. As we look at the the life of Joseph, I'm going to kind of run us through the major events in his life. And it is we're going to have to move pretty quickly because there's 13 chapters. We're not going to read all of that. But we're going to kind of go through some of the key things. And in your your outline today, I kind of have the four major categories that we're going to look at of things that happened in his life. So if you're familiar with the story, just kind of follow along. If you're unfamiliar, I challenge you this to grab your Bible and to uh, read this story and kind of become even more familiar. But I'll do my best to tell us, to uh, help us get all up to speed on what Joseph's life was about. But we really see Joseph's life kind of come into view in Genesis chapter 37. We learn that he is son number 11 out of 12. And his dad, his dad's name was Jacob, and Jacob had four, four different wives, essentially, that had these 11 or 12 sons. And, and so Jacob had this kind of family filled with kids and, and wives, and he learned in the words of Rich Mullins, it's one thing to win them and another to keep them content. But, um, so he had this house of women and kids, and see, I'm the only one who got that both services. But anyway, okay, so, I still go after it though, you know. <laughs> But so he had, he, he's just suffering through this, or having this kind of rough life. But then he has this kid, Joseph, from his wife, Rachel. And, and Joseph becomes his favorite son. And Joseph lets everyone know his, or sorry, Jacob lets everyone know that Joseph is his favorite son. He buys him this robe. And the Hebrew word here is a little bit cryptic, but we think it means it's like a long robe. Um, probably is a long sleeve, long robe, and it has this kind of fancy embroidery on it, and the, this multi-colors. And, and so if you'd be wearing that, this is not something you wear to work in the fields. Okay, This is not the, the robe of a shepherd boy. It's not the robe of a hard laborer. This is the robe of someone who's, you know, this is, I guess this is just, he has swag on here. He's, you see someone walking around in this multicolored robe and you think, playa. So that's who he is. And, and, and his dad buys him that to let him know that he's like, has this different status. He's favored by his dad and he, he's special. Now that is not good parenting advice, by the way. <laughs> If you have other kids, you don't want to say, oh, this is my favorite. I'm going to get you everything. But that's what his dad does. And his brothers, in turn, don't like him very much. In fact, it says that they couldn't even speak a kind word to them, to him. And then Joseph had this series of dreams we find in, in, in verse 5 through 11 of Genesis 37. Where these dreams were, and then he tells his family about them. He says, oh, in my dreams, you guys all bowed down to me and I was elevated above you. Um, you know, if you ever have a dream like that, it's not always a good idea to share that one, but he does. And then his brothers hate him even more. So one day, we find in verse 12 through 36, the, his brothers are out tending the sheep, or tending the flock out in the fields. And his dad says, Joseph, I'm going to send you 
to go check on your brothers. Now here, I don't know why his dad thought that would be a good idea, but something kind of happens in here, and, and I don't know what's really to do with this, but Joseph has this weird response. He goes, I am ready to go. Almost like, I know this is going to end bad, but I'm ready. I'm prepared. Let's do it. And he goes out to the fields. And his brothers see him coming in his fancy robe from a long distance. And they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Now, I have three boys. So we see some sibling rivalry and some fighting and stuff. But I would expect, like, here comes that dreamer. Let's give him a wedgie. Tie him to the flagpole in his underwear and leave him there. Like, that's acceptable. Right? I mean, that's fine. But they see him and they say, here comes a dreamer, let's kill him. So he comes up and the oldest brother says, hey, I I got it. Let's not kill him. Let's just take off his robe and throw him in the pit and leave him there. And these cisterns that would be dug out in the the desert. And the others think, well, why not? Sounds good. Group think with a group of boys is always, you know, recipe for success. So they strip off his clothes, throw him in the pit. And then we find them having a picnic right next to him for some reason. And then they look up and see this tribe of Ishmaelites who are on this kind of trade route. It's a spice trade. This thing called the King's Highway. And they're heading down to Egypt. And another one of the brothers has a better idea, even better than just leave him in the pit. Let's sell him. <laughs> now, as a parent, I know we've probably all offered to sell our kids at some time or other. I know. I've taken my kids down from eBay, but they were there for a while. But yeah, I mean, so you might say you're going to sell them, but they're like, let's sell him. So the Ishmaelites come up and they say, hey, Ishmaelites, do you want to buy this kid who looks a lot like the rest of us? He's for sale. (laughs) And they're like, sure, we'll buy him. We'll give you 20 shekels, the price of a slave. So they sell their brother. And Joseph now is being carried off south to Egypt. At this point in the story, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What emotions do you have? (laughs) Your brothers threw you in a pit, stripped off your robe, and sold you. A little bit of, oh, if I ever get out of here, you wait. Would that be a thought, maybe? (laughs) He's abandoned by his family. The first part of his story, he found that he had found favor with his father, but then he was abandoned by his brothers. His story goes on. In Genesis chapter 39, we find him now, he, he's been sold into slavery, and now he's working for this guy named Potiphar in Egypt. Potiphar is a royal official in Egypt. And he, he he's, has a high standing, and so Joseph is working in that house, and we find here in Genesis 39, verses 2 through 3, that the Lord was with Joseph, and Potiphar found favor with him. Something about Joseph's life, even as a servant now, He still kept his attitude and perspective and was elevated to the place where they found favor with him. His master said, I am going to put you in charge of my entire household. I will not concern myself with anything because of you, Joseph. Something about Joseph's way he worked, something about his integrity made him compelling. And he was placed in charge of all of Potiphar's house. But Potiphar's wife looked at Joseph and said, that is a fine looking young man. (laughs) And it said that she repeatedly made advances at him until one day she grabbed him by his robe and said, Joseph, come to bed with me. A little direct. And and he, he looked at her and said, no, I cannot do such a thing. And trying to get away from her, he squirmed out of his robe, the robe that would have been given to him by Potiphar as the head of his house. And he stripped off and left there. 
The second time in the story, we see that Joseph's robe has been stripped off of him. By the way, in the ancient Near East, your robe identified who you were and had status of where you belonged or where you belong. And it was pulled off of him. Potiphar's wife felt embarrassed. And so she said, wait, look at our slave tried to make an advance at me. Here's evidence. I'm holding his robe. And so Joseph, though he did nothing wrong, was betrayed by his master's wife. He was found, they found favor with him, yet he was betrayed. And Potiphar's anger burned and he threw him into a prison. But I want to catch a little nuance of this story. The justified punishment for what Joseph would have done or allegedly did was immediate death. And at the very least, into a prison for hardened criminals. But he was placed into a prison that we learn is part of Pharaoh's kind of royal prison. It's kind of the white-collar crimes. It's really interesting that he's placed there, and it becomes very significant, we learn pretty soon. Where Joseph should have been in a dungeon suffering the rest of his life, he's in this white-collar prison, like next to Martha Stewart, who's baking cookies. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we get. And if you read the story in its context, it doesn't make sense. But we'll learn later that God was up to something. And maybe it was Potiphar even said, you know, I kind of buy Joseph's story, but I can't, I can't trust the slave. So we're sending him to this prison. Well, in the prison, we find that in verse, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 40, that Joseph finds favor with the jailer, the guy who's over the prison. Joseph rises up, and once again, God is with Joseph, and those around him find favor with him. He's placed in charge of the entire prison. Joseph, again, somehow in his life, he lived with this way, this integrity, and did not compromise whoever he was, no matter what circumstance. Where would you be at this point? Betrayed by or abandoned by your family, betrayed by a master. You didn't do anything wrong. But he somehow finds favor with the jailer. He's placed over the entire, all the prisoners, all the white-collar prisoners. And then we find one day there's two new characters introduced to the story. A guy named the cupbearer and the baker. They worked directly with Pharaoh. The cupbearer's job was essentially to, every time Pharaoh was handed a drink, he would take a drink of it to make sure there's not poison in it. The way you find out if there's poison, the cupbearer dies. It's a great job to aspire to, but that's the job he had. Pharaoh, for whatever reason, one day became angry with them and sent them to this prison. So they met Joseph. And in the prison, they had dreams. We see dreams pop up again in the story. But in their dreams, Joseph says, oh, I can tell you what those mean. God will reveal the meaning to you. And as he revealed the meaning to the cupbearer, and he said, the only thing I ask for you is you're going to be restored to your position. You're going to be sitting next to Pharaoh in three days from now. And the only thing I ask is that you remember me. Tell Pharaoh that I shouldn't be here. Help get me out of here. And the cupbearer says, I will totally remember you. I will for sure remember you. In three days, he's restored, and the cupbearer is next to Pharaoh, and he forgets about Joseph. Now, if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, okay, it's been a couple days. He probably just, he's busy. He's tasting a lot of drinks for Pharaoh. It's okay. After maybe a week, you're thinking, uh, a month goes by. Now a year. And you know, I've been forgotten. And I'm in prison. Two years go by, scripture tells us. And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And then Pharaoh, he wanted to know what it means. And so he said, he starts going, if no one can tell me what this means, I am going to begin killing people. 
At that point, the cupbearer gets his memory back. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, it just struck me. <laughs> totally forgot, <laughs> whatever. Two years ago, I said I'd remember this guy. He can interpret dreams, but yeah, he's in prison. <laughs> Go get him. If you were Joseph, do you think you might be like, no, that hasn't been working out. Sure, I'll interpret your dream. Yeah, that's been working well for me. But he goes. He shares with Pharaoh, what your dream really means is that for seven years, we're going to have an abundant harvest. And it's followed by seven years of incredible famine. Like no one has ever seen. And so then Joseph says, Pharaoh, hey, the next seven years, you better store up all this grain. Be prepared because a famine is coming. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph and he says, there's no one in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. Pharaoh says, could we find anyone in the entire earth in whom the spirit of God rests like Joseph? In other words, there is no one I've ever seen who has a spirit of God in him like Joseph. So Pharaoh elevates Joseph. He gives him a new robe, a royal robe. That signifies that he is second in command over all of Egypt. And he says, Joseph, you have all the power that I have. Help us. And through Joseph's life there, we see that he actually had the wisdom to save up and spared the Egyptians from the coming famine and even was able to then extend, we learn later in the story, some hospitality to his own family. And because of his position, he was able to rescue and save the family of Israelites and preserve this promise that was given to them, to their grandfather, Abraham, three generations prior. Because of that, we even learn that Joseph, when I look at his life, I think, how could he have that attitude? But something about him, he just continues Press on. In Genesis 41, verse 51, Joseph actually has a kid. And his first son, he names him Manasseh, which is basically God has made me forget my father's household and all of my afflictions. And that's not saying he, for, oh, I forgot I ever had sorrow. Oh, I forgot I had a family. It was God has given me the ability to put all of that behind. I'm not going to hang on to it anymore, is what he's saying. Something about Joseph in his life, he was able to keep returning back. We learn in chapter 50 of Joseph's life, in Genesis, chapter 50, his, his father dies and his brothers, and, and even his reunion with his brothers, by the way, we're not focusing on that, but I love the reunion. Joseph is second in command over all of Egypt and his, he sees his brothers. His brothers don't know that he's Joseph because he looks more like an Egyptian. He's shaved and dressed differently, but he sees them. And instead of saying, oh, I got you now. We find that through a series of events, Joseph finally, he weeps and breaks down and throws his arms around the neck of his brothers. And when they would expect something else, he's like, hey, guess what? It's me, Joseph. Remember, you stripped me, you threw me in a pit, you sold me to the Ishmaelites. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, I'm in charge of the world now. (laughs) And it's so good to see you again. Would that be the response? (laughs) That is not what my response would be. Yet Joseph finds it in him. And then when his father dies in chapter 50, verse 20 and 21, his brothers say, hey, um, yeah, dad wanted us to tell you that to promise not to ever kill us now that he's dead. <laughs> and Joseph looked at him and said, guys, what you meant for harm, God intended to use for good. In other words, why would I stand in the way of what God's doing? 
It's not for me to decide. I look at Joseph's life and I think, wouldn't that be a lot easier to go through all that if he knew the end of the story first? Wouldn't it be great if in our lives you go through something tough, but you get to see a year ahead so you know how it ends? You lose your job and you're able to somehow see a year from now you get a job that you would have never had if you had stayed in that old one? Or, or, or some of our single people, one of the biggest struggles is, will I ever find someone to share my life with? And, and a relationship ends and you have this feeling like, great, now I'm single forever. I thought that person was it. Wouldn't it be nice to know that maybe two years down the road you find the absolute perfect person? And you go, oh, that's how the story ends. But life doesn't work that way. Joseph didn't get to see the end of the story. We don't get to see what happens next. So the question for us, when we land in the pits of life, how do we find God working there? How do we find God working in the pits as Joseph seemed to have done so well? I just have a few things I think we find in this story. And the first one is this. I I said look look inward, um, but really what I mean by that is don't look inside and find salvation in yourself. But look inward in the sense of don't look outward at the circumstances. Look inward on who you are and who you, what your convictions are. What do you really believe? And don't let the circumstances determine who you are. I know that that is life 101, right? That's kind of like everything that I should learn. I learned in kindergarten. I think that's one of them. Don't let the situation tell you who you are. But isn't that a great reminder? If you're abandoned by your family, how easy is that to say, oh, circumstances don't mind. Don't matter. That's difficult. But Joseph somehow in this finds a way. He teaches us about the value of integrity. We read about integrity often throughout scripture. In Titus chapter 2 verse 7, Paul is writing to Titus and he's, he's giving him advice for life. And I love the way he words this here in, in Titus chapter 2 verse 7. It says, and I'll read it to you. It says, in, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Or in all things, Titus, hang on to your integrity with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In other words, Titus, don't you know that if you can hang on to who you say you are, it actually causes even your enemies to look foolish around you. Don't let your circumstances change who you really are. In Job, the story of Job, we studied that a few weeks ago, but Job is this guy, he, he went through like everything you could ever go through in life, right? And, and I love in Job chapter 2, he, he has lost his all of his wealth, he lost his um, family members, his life is just a mess. Now he has these boils. I mean, it's like, could it get any worse? And his wife says this thing to him in chapter 2, verses 9. His wife looks at Job and says, Hey, Job, would you just get rid of your integrity? And curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Great advice. Who cares about your integrity? Curse God and die. In other words, Job, quit hanging on to this ideal that you're going to be unwavering even in the face of hard things. Just get it over with. Curse God. Let him kill you. <laughs> and Job's response was, is it fair for me to accept what is good from God but not accept what is bad? And in that, he's not saying, yeah, God's going to give me some good things, some bad things. He's really saying, hey, if I have the ability to believe that God is good when everything is going my way, why should I change what I believe about God or who I am just because things aren't going the way I think they should go? 
I mean, integrity is saying, you know, if, if it's good enough to believe and to follow God when things are good, then he, he doesn't change. Why should I change? I heard a story of a friend of mine. His uncle was teaching him how to play poker and teach him how to play poker. He was playing a few hands. He's, he kept losing. And his uncle goes, you know what your problem is? You fold too fast. What do you mean? I fold too fast. And he said, every time you get a few cards, you look at your cards and you say, these cards are awful and you're out. You fold. You quit. He said, if you want to win at poker, hang on to those cards. And, and maybe that next round, you're going to get some better cards. And you're going to look at those better cards and maybe, maybe one more round and, and then it gets even better. And you look at your hand and what started off looking like a mess. If you hang on just a little longer, you might see that, hey, there's a better thing coming. But you fold too fast. You give up right away and you never know what's around the corner. He said, and the other thing is this. You assume the cards you have are the worst cards out there. When the very fact is that hand you have might be the best hand on the table. But you'll never know because you give up. Sometimes in our Christian life, it's real tempting, isn't it, to say, God, this is a mess. You can have it. Let me do it on my own. This hand is not worth playing, so let me take over and be God. That's the temptation, to just say, this is a mess. It is very difficult to say, okay, this is what I got. Let's hang on. Let's see what comes next. Let me hang on and stay true. When we focus on the circumstances, we think our cards are the worst ones. When we stay true to who we are, we don't fold. You can hang in there. The other thing is this, is I, I like to think of it as look upward. And this is just really cling to your faith. Believe that God is present in your situation. And, and sometimes it's hard to believe that God is present. But the truth is, if God says he's there, we got to have that ability to say, OK, you're there. If we really believe in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says that God is able to work all things for the good of those who love him. We have to believe God that he's able to do that. Even in the midst of pretty tough things. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, he's talking about faith. And he says this, and I want us to understand this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For it by men of old have gained approval. Faith is a conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Do you know what the opposite of faith is? It's not doubt. It's sight. Being able to see is the opposite of faith, according to Scripture. Faith is the ability to say, I can't see what's going to happen. I can't see what you're up to, God. I can't even see that you're there. Faith is believing that even when you cannot see. The opposite of faith is being able to see. So when we're in the pits of life, choosing to believe and choosing to have faith is a difficult thing. But it's clinging to you say, God... I know that somehow in this, you're still working. I choose to believe that you're there. Instead of folding, instead of running, instead of saying, no, I I don't see it, I don't understand it, I cannot believe anymore. That is the very time we need to say, okay, God, I trust you're there. And my guess is some of us in this room, if you could go back at period or times in your life, you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, God was absolutely there. I didn't see it. I didn't believe it. Uh, One thing I love about this church is there's people who've kind of been around a little longer than the rest of us and have experienced a lot of times when I bet we can learn some wonderful things from them. 
Times when we're saying, oh, I don't see how God's working, and they go, hold on. (laughs) That's nothing. Let me tell you the times I've seen God work. Cling to that faith. Look upward and say, God, I I don't get it, but I'll trust that you're there. Finally, how to meet God in the pits, how to see him in the pits of life, I'd say this, look outward. In other words, live for a purpose. Live for a purpose. You know, the worst thing to do when you're in the pits of life is just to focus on that pit. Look at what Joseph did back in Genesis chapter 40. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 6, we find that Joseph is he's over he's in prison and he's in charge of all the prisoners. This is when we met the cupbearer and baker. And in verse 6 of chapter 40, Joseph sees the cupbearer and baker and it says that they looked they looked downcast. And Joseph said, you look downcast. What's going on? What? Are you okay? Which, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. We're in prison. (laughs) Kind of a bummer. (laughs) But Joseph could have said like, oh, I know. This is awful, isn't it? We're all in prison. We don't deserve to be here. We all were thrown here for no reason. This is awful. Life is awful, isn't it? Let's try to find a way to get out of here. That could be the response. I think for me, there's always that temptation. You know, when you're going through something and you find someone else in that same... Misery loves company, right? (laughs) If they're not going through it, you want to bring them into it so they feel it too. But But you know when you both have something to complain about, you have a boss that you don't like, it's easy to be like, oh, this is the pits. Look what Joseph does. He says, hey guys, look like something's wrong. What's wrong? How can I help? Somehow Joseph, even in the midst of, he's been abandoned, he's been betrayed, he's about to be forgotten, and still he's living with a purpose and saying, hey, these guys look like they need a touch of this encouragement. Oh, great. And, and notice in Joseph's story, and I want us all to get this, if one thing were different in his story, none of this would work. If he gave up at any point during this story, the story would be radically different. If he did not get sold and thrown into the pit and then sold into slavery, he would not have met Potiphar, a royal official. If he didn't meet Potiphar, he wouldn't have been betrayed and thrown into the royal prison. If he didn't get thrown into the royal prison, he would not have met the cupbearer who was friends with the pharaoh. So he would not have been introduced to the pharaoh. He would not have interpreted pharaoh's dreams. He would not have been able to spare Egypt from the coming famine and preserve the family of Israelites and the promise given to his great-grandfather Abraham. Do you see that? If one thing were different. But Joseph looked in and said, this is who I am, my convictions. I will not change based on what happens. He didn't give up. He said, I still believe that God is there even when I don't get it. And he remained true to his faith. And he lived with a purpose. He didn't say, Pharaoh, I'm not going to interpret your dreams. You're going to kill me and forget me anyway. No, no. He said, okay, God, use me. You're going to use me? Use me. I remember uh, the time when I was serving for a short time in um, the business world and I was out of vocational ministry and, and thinking, yeah, this is what I live for now. I live for sales comps and I live for, you know, hiring and retention rates and all this stuff. This is, this is me now. This is my calling in life. <laughs> And I could look at the circumstances and say, God, you didn't create me for this. And he looked at me, and I, I really believe that in that time, God was saying, really, what's this circumstance have to do with your calling? And I had so many opportunities to pray with people who never would set foot in a church. 
to encourage people who never had anyone, give them encouragement. God's saying, it doesn't matter if you're in the prison called work (laughs) or where you are. Live for a purpose. Don't focus on the pit of life. Be someone in that pit. Because I'm God, you're not. And that's a good thing for all of you that I'm not God, by the way. (laughs) That's great news. That's the good news. (laughs) Jesus is God, I am not. Jesus is God, you are not. We can trust that somehow God has us figured out, even in the pits. So as we close our time here today, let's go back to that first question. What is something in your life that you wish you could have gone back and told yourself? Maybe right now, if you could have you from the future come back and say something, what would it be? Would it be, hang on, wait till you see the end of the story. The story's going to get really good. You got to just hang on. Let God use you where you're at. Let's close in prayer, and I'm going to ask you a series of questions as we close here. So just close your eyes with me. And We're going to use the rest of our time this morning just to reflect. We have a couple songs here. No interruptions. There's no offering. There's nothing else. And in this, I want to ask you just to ask God to encourage your heart, to speak to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I don't even believe that God is there. This morning, would you have the courage to say, okay, God, if you're there, start to reveal yourself to me. Teach me what faith is. Maybe you this morning need to quit focusing on the pit and say, God, what do you want me to live for? And as we end, let's just pray that God would speak to us and meet us where we're at, challenge us. Let's not be a church who is so focused on the pits that we forget that we're in the middle of an amazing story that God is writing. And during our time of worship, I want to challenge each of you just to stay in a posture of prayer, at least for the first couple seconds or minute, and let God speak to you, whatever that might be. It might be a word of encouragement today. It might be a voice that says, just hang on. And when you're ready to respond and worship, just join in and and let's just worship our God knowing that even when we don't get it, we trust that he's there and moving and that is a good thing. God, we pray right now that you would move in this place. We ask that you'd meet us in our pits of life and God, you'd help us be focused on you and not us. Lord, for those this morning who need that extra touch of encouragement, that extra word from you, God, I pray that they could get it. That word that would say, just hang on, don't give up. God, to know that you are walking with us, to know that you are there, even when we don't sense it. God, help us know that today. We give you this time and ask that you'd continue to move.